Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You don't have to be in bed with these mixed signals. Because when you're laying in bed with racing thoughts, you're telling your body is, hey body, I want you to sleep. Hey brain, don't forget to take care of this. But you're spinning your wheels, not getting anywhere, right? If you're stuck in the mud, stepping harder than the gas is not going to get you out of the mud. You got to change your approach to it. You're listening to Dr. Rafael Paleo on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. You guys, we have a super exciting announcement here at Psychologists Off the Clock. We are hosting our first annual Psychologists Off the Clock Wise Mind Summit, How to Adapt and Thrive in Today's Challenging Times. And we are bringing incredible experts on all different topics to help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. So Diana, tell us about this incredible lineup. We have two full days lined up for you and cover everything from growing the good in your brain and your life to how to build more movement into your life, how to build more self-care, navigating the demands of work, parenting, and partnership, how to empower our kids during challenging times, and how to help you with healthy habits, especially during a pandemic. And it's going to be fantastic. All four of our co-hosts are going to be presenting in addition to Michael Harold and some people that we really admire and, and want to to hear from again, including Alex Payne, Robin Gobin, Julie Lithcott-Holmes, Rick Hansen, Katie Bowman, and more. So join us on Friday and Saturday, January 29th and 30th. To register, you can just go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com. And the best part is, you guys, it is free. So you don't want to miss this amazing summit with these amazing, amazing speakers. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Rafael Paleo from Stanford on the show today to talk to us all about sleep. And it's something that's on a lot of our minds right now when we're not sleeping. And what I really appreciate about Dr. Paleo is he takes such a um, flexible approach to, to sleep. He doesn't say there's just one way to go about it or one way to do it. But I'm curious, El, what were your thoughts on the episode? Well, first of all, in my therapy practice, everybody's talking about what a hard time they're having with sleep. And I personally can relate so much to this. Um, I think ever since the pandemic started, I've been really struggling. I think it's, you know, the chronic stress and worry and all the things that are on my mind. And, you know, not to mention aging, I was just saying before we started recording, Diana, that I had a rough sleep last night because um, I hurt my back and I couldn't find a comfortable position. And so sometimes, you know, sleep problems can stem from like things that have nothing to do with our mind worrying, but like physical issues. 
And still a lot of the strategies that he offers are really helpful. One of the things that I find really useful is just to not get too hung up on the fact that I'm going to be tired tomorrow, but rather just to try to rest where I am or try to do something restful. And I think, you know, switching your attention away from worries and into something that feels more restful is is a really useful strategy and one that you've talked about before with Dr. Alicia Bross on a previous episode. Yeah, Dr. Bross talks a lot about cognitive behavioral interventions for sleep and in particular more acceptance-based or act-based CBT interventions. And one of the reasons why that works so well is exactly what you're talking about is that there's this whole paradox of sleep. It's the thing that the more we try to get ourselves to sleep, the less likely it's going to happen. And sleep has this real two-way street in terms of mental health. One, if you're not getting as much sleep, you have higher risk for mental health conditions. And then a lot of mental health conditions can cause us not to sleep. And Dr. Raphael has a really kind, compassionate approach and is really reassuring when you listen to him. It's going to be okay if you don't sleep. My favorite part is when he said, if you wake up in the middle of the night, be glad you're alive. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. One thing to know is he's going to be back with us on our summit in January. So send us your sleep questions. We know you have them and we'll be able to ask him live and get them answered for you. So anything that you have back pain or uh, any other worries, we can ask Dr. Paleo. And Diana, you had been talking before about a sleep meditation. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of different things that I do when I can't sleep, some of which uh, I talk about in the episode. But one is I use um, more kind of visualization practices. And there's a visualization that I use for myself that I also use with my kids when they wake up in the night and I go in and tell it to them. So if you want to check that out, you can go to my website at drdianahill.com. It's just a little short audio that you could listen to and then do for yourself. When you can't sleep, your kids can't sleep, or maybe even your partner can't sleep. So take a look at drdianahill.com. We really value our continuing education here at Psychologists Off the Clock, and we know that you value yours too. That's why we're thrilled to bring you our partnership with Praxis Continuing Education and Training. Praxis aspires to set a new standard in evidence-based professional development for behavioral health professionals. They offer both live and online workshops conducted by top-class peer-reviewed trainers in contemporary behavioral therapies, including Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, compassion-focused therapy, radically open dialectical behavior therapy, and others. Praxis is the premier ACT training facilitator in the nation, with reoccurring workshops from ACT co-founders Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson, as well as a number of other leaders in the ACT community. If you're interested in deepening your clinical skills, check out Praxis through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and there you'll find a $25 off coupon code to get started on your next training today. Dr. Rafael Paleo is the author of How to Sleep and a clinical professor at Stanford University. Since 1993, he has worked at the Stanford Sleep Disorders Clinic. He teaches the popular Sleep in Dreams undergraduate course and co-authored the textbook with Dr. William DeMent. And I've heard that they squirt you with a squirt gun if you fall asleep in that class. He's lectured throughout the country and internationally, and he helped lead the effort to delay school start times in California, which we thank here in California as parents of preteens. Uh, he's in, his undergraduate degree is from the University of Puerto Rico, and his initial exposure to sleep was in, as a medical student in the Bronx, and it became the focus of his career. He trained in child neurology as a pathway into sleep medicine. He currently volunteers in leadership positions for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the National Sleep Foundation, School Start Later, and the California Sleep Society. Welcome, Dr. Paleo. It's such a treasure to have you on. We need you right now. We haven't been sleeping. 
A lot of us haven't slept for the whole year 2020, so uh, it's good to have you and help us get back on track with better sleep. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Your book, How to Sleep, is excellent. And as we were talking about before we started recording, my partner and I have been like fighting over it. He keeps on stealing it from me. I was trying to get it read by this date. And what I love about the book is that you you cover a whole lot of information in a really uh, accessible way. It's it's actually is a page turner on sleep, which is, I don't know, ironic, but it covers everything from why animals sleep, right? It's It's quite interesting. Sleep has become such a hot topic. I don't, I imagine it wasn't quite as hot when you entered into it as a medical student, but it's, it's everywhere now. It's equivalent to eating and exercise in terms of our physical health and as a psychologist, our mental health. I think a good place for us to start is just maybe even understanding what is, what is sleep, what's happening when we sleep before we uh, tackle some of the problems associated with sleep. Could you start there? Sure. Um, yeah, you're completely correct. When I was a medical student, it was a novelty to get into sleep. And when I was in New Puerto Rico, I had asked somebody, I want to learn about sleep. And they laughed at me and said, nobody does that. And I'm the first physician in my family. And I remember somebody told me, what are you doing? You could be a surgeon. You could do so many other things. What are you doing sleep? It's like, what's wrong with you? And I took out all these student loans and all this debt. And I was just curious about it. And when I started in 1993 at Stanford, there were entire states that didn't have sleep labs. So it was completely wide open. My curiosity about sleep, I think, began, I think when I was 12 or 13, I had a lucid dream. And I was like, oh, my God, I could do whatever I want. And, and then I became curious about why do we dream? Why do we sleep? And I was interested in animal behavior. Why do animals sleep? Do animals dream? But I thought it was such an interesting topic to get into because what was fun about it is that people got better. And we were talking about what, what is sleep. But it's unusual for people not to improve. So especially something like neurology, where, where people have such horrible diseases that don't get better easily. Sleep just seems the right thing to do. Um, interesting to, to think about defining sleep, because we've been doing it longer than we've been eating and longer than we've been exercising. People uh, sleep in utero. Just as a simple working definition of sleep, sleep is a, a natural physiological restorative process and somehow restores our, our ability to, to, to think and to function. But the question really is, what's it actually restoring? We don't know that, right? We know we feel better. All of us have had the experience of, you know, being so tired that you can't go on, too sleepy. You're studying, you're reading, you're doing something. Goes, I can't do it. And then you finally fall asleep. And then, magically, it seems, a few hours later, your brain is recharged, it's refreshed. You can now do something you couldn't do before, and you feel good. So it is this wonderful, mysterious physiological process that goes on. And I've come to think of sleep as the ultimate form of self-care. Think about it, right? Because it's, it's what the brain needs, what the brain wants. And it's not just the brain, the entire body sleeps. But it seems to be really a neurological or a, a part of the, something the brain really, really has to do more than anything else. Yeah. So you've written this book, How to Sleep, and in it, you go through some of the interesting things that are happening in the different stages of sleep, like during REM sleep, we're working on our memories and emotions. And during slow wave sleep, we may be working on growth hormone. And, and so can you talk just a little bit about maybe the stages of sleep, what we go through, and then uh, what happens when that sleep gets interrupted? Sure. So initially, people thought sleep was this kind of this passive thing. And poets and writers and Philosophers always describe sleep as this death-like state. And it wasn't until they started uh, looking at, at brain waves that they realized that sleep was a very rich, active process. And in fact, the sleeping brain 
uh, may use more more glucose when it's sleeping than when it's awake. The brain is not this passive thing. And patients say this all the time. This is, I can't sleep because I can't turn off my brain. I mean, how many times have you heard that? My problem is I can't turn off my brain. And I said, well, you not supposed to turn off your brain. It's not what sleep's about. Sleep, your, your brain is not turned off at all. It's actually quite active. It, it's, it's doing busy work. It's maintenance. It's, things are going on. Once they realized that sleep was this active process, then they caught on to, this is in the early 50s, um, my, my friend and mentor, uh, Bill DeMent, was doing this, um, that there were, seems to be two very different kinds of sleep. That one is when you were dreaming and other ones when you weren't dreaming, the, the rapid eye movements. And so they divided sleep into this REM sleep, REM sleep, and non-REM sleep. And the focus then of these early sleep researchers in the 50s was all about Freud and Sigmund Freud coming in. And remember that Sigmund Freud wrote The Interpretation of Dreams and was published in 1899. That's a long time ago. And the human EEG was not developed until 1924. So it was 25 years later that they could actually measure brain waves. And then 25 years later, when they could actually do the study all night and realize that the brain was different at different times of the night. So once they found the REM, they thought, oh, this is linked to dreaming. This is what it's all about. Kind of disrespectfully, Bill DeMent called the rest of sleep non-REM sleep. REM and non-REM. That's how we think about it. We have 80% of our night is non-REM, but even that chunk of sleep looks different at different times of the night. So they talked about it, it being light, intermediate, and deep. So now we use the term of the sleep stages. We enter sleep into stage one. And I think of it like transmissions in a car's gear, how the car gets moving. And stage one is the stage of sleep that often gets ignored because uh, we think, well, we want to get our deep sleep. Delta sleep or slow wave sleep is only about 10% of the night if you're really healthy and fit. And if that was what we needed, we'd get rid of 90% of our night. About half of it, 60% is stage two. But the stage one is what often gets ignored. People in stage one think they're awake when a factor is sleep. It's our lightest level of sleep. And that's something that a lot of your, your patients and, and clients will, will say that I've been lying in bed awake for hours. But if you really talk with them in detail, you realize that they've been drifting in and out of sleep so lightly that they feel like they're awake, but they're actually getting some sleep, but it's not a satisfactory type of sleep. So those are different sleep stages. And I have a question around that because as people have gotten more into sleep, they've also gotten more into trying to figure out what's happening, some of that kind of personal biohacking with I'm wearing my aura ring. People have their whoop. You have your phone that tracks it. And I'm not even sure how accurate any of this is. But but what I do notice is that in the beginning of the night, I go into deep sleep pretty quickly. I stay in deep sleep for long periods of time. And then it seems like I go into REM later on in the, in the morning time. And if I set my alarm really early and I wake myself up, I'm often waking up in a dream. So is that part of uh, the landscape of sleep? Correct. Yes. So you go through these different cycles and these different stages, and the, the summation of all these different stages it gets the term sleep architecture. Sometimes you hear people talk about, uh, is my sleep architecture affected by a medication or by some exercise or some other factor? Um, the REM sleep uh, dominates the last third of the night, but, you, but it depends on your age also, because when, when a baby is born, half of their time that they're sleeping is in REM sleep or active sleep. So the bulk of a newborn sleep is actually dreaming sleep. And when I first came to California from New York, somebody asked me a question. I said, I was giving a lecture. I said, well, half the time the baby's maybe sleeping 17, 18 hours, half their time is dreaming sleep, but nobody knows what they're dreaming about. And then some lady raised her hand in the back of the room and said, uh, they're dreaming about their past lives. 
I'm like, I'm in California now. I've arrived. I mean, I don't know. How, how do I? Welcome to I, California. I, I, exactly. It might be true. I mean, there's no way of saying yes or no. We're talking about an infant. But the point is that they have all this active sleep or dreaming sleep. So they start off like dreaming. And if you have a, a newborn, you can start seeing their eyes darting under, the, under their closed eyelids as they fall asleep. But later, as we get a little bit older, the dreamings dominate the last third of the night. And you're doing exactly the right thing, Diana. You can actually, if you set your alarm clock, you can you can re- report yourself um, having a dream. And one of the questions that came up early on in the sleep researchers and the dream researchers in particular, were people saying, well, I don't, I don't think I dream. Does everybody dream? And what they did was they, they took all these volunteers who reported not dreaming and they went to put them in the sleep lab and they were in REM sleep, they'd wake them up. And then 80% of the time they'd report a dream. So these people who were saying they don't dream actually were just not aware of their dreams, which is different. And that changed psychoanalysis completely because it's not whether you're dreaming or not, it's whether you have recall of your dreams and how can you enhance that. So what is the function of dreaming then? What is it doing for us in those early morning hours? Dreaming, different ideas have come about it. There's several, several different lines of thought about it from a line of thought thinking that dreaming has no function at all, that it's just uh, something we're wasting our time dwelling on, that the bulk of sleep is what matters more to other folks that what I think is more accurate is that sleep is enhancing our memory. It's a way of, t- of testing systems. Um, there's a, an idea that dreaming is actually um, the mechanism. Someday we're going to figure out the physiology of creativity, right? And creativity is a human function, right? How do you troubleshoot? And the biology of creativity may be tied into dreaming sleep because dreams are very creative spaces. And we can test out ideas and test things out. In essence, you have to always think of it as we're animals and an awake animal is in danger of being attacked and a sleeping animal is in even greater danger of being attacked. What gives us an edge over other animals is that we can adapt to a changing world. So how do you adapt to a changing world? You must take information that, you, that you've acquired. When you get new information, incorporate that new information with your old knowledge you already have in your brain to, to solve a new problem. And, and that's what makes us different, right? If anything makes us different, um, and it may be just be degrees of it, but the ability to adapt to a changing world means that we have to be able to take some time to get into our own heads a little bit about what we've learned. If I'm in the middle of doing something, I can't stop to recollect all these things that I've done before. I've got to get into my head a little bit. For the last like three or four days, I've been trying to remember a name of a song that it happened to be a Paul Simon song um, that I that I played for a friend, and I couldn't remember what that song was. And then just about half an hour ago, I'm like, it came to my head, but it, it's been percolating in my head for a while, and marinating in my head for a while that, that I can't remember this thing. But at the same time, I can't focus all my time to this. I'm seeing patients doing other things, so it's been in the back of my mind. It really is in the back of your mind for a while, and maybe in dreaming, things come to the front of your mind a little bit, and you can find these connections. But you know that relief you get when something just pops in your head that you've been struggling to remember and it showed up. And I was just happy to, to get that. So dreaming is going to be tied into this issue of, of memory. And it's going to be also be tied into this issue of creativity. And I think it's more of an epiphenomenon in some way. Like somebody says, well, um, if, if a biologist were to ask you, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, if somebody were to ask you, does... Um, does singing have a function, right? Does singing have a function? The biologists say, well, you don't, probably not because you can live your life and never sing, right? You, right? you don't have to sing. And a lot of people say they don't sing. 
But if you ask an anthropologist or somebody who's a sociologist, singers are among the most valued people in our society. So from the biological point of view, what we really need to do is exchange air, right? We need to exchange carbon dioxide for oxygen, but from that need to exchange air is the ability to control our breathing, which leads us to be able to communicate, lets us to sing. And if you see a newborn baby, they're singing before they're talking, right? There's a very sing-song equality to what they're doing. So certainly singing is important and it's more perhaps an epiphenomenon that gives us an advantage to communicate to the people. And there's no doubt that dreaming has been of value to our society. It's, it inspires people. We talk about a leader having a great vision. That's so quick, you know, where is that coming from? This comes directly from dreaming. And every single religion you can think of is written about dreams and, and, and their sacred texts. So, it, so it's very influential to, to our lives. But you, some people would argue that it has no function at all. In fact, a lot of our patients' clients are using antidepressants, and they suppress the ability to dream. So I think dreaming definitely has functions to it, but you can get by with doing it less. But life is better when you have you can recall your dreams, I think. And even speaking of California, and you do have a whole section about lucid dreaming in your book, where if you want to go in there and, and um, tinker around with your dreams a bit, some ideas around that. One of the things that you just mentioned with the Paul Simon song, which now I I need to know what's the song that <laughs> was stuck in your head. It, it's just a song called Diamonds on the Soles of Their Feet. Oh, yeah. She's got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. That's an excellent one. Uh, but, but sometimes, you know, we can't get something to pop into our head. And then other times we can't get things out of our head. And oftentimes the times we can't get it out of our head is when we're trying to fall asleep. And that can be such a, a problem for folks that are, are trying to go to sleep. It seems like everything rushes in all everything from our lists of to do's to things that happened months ago that we're ruminating about. Can you talk a little bit about uh, insomnia? Because sleep is uh, this paradoxical thing where it's like, I kind of think of it's like catching a butterfly, the harder you try at it, the further it moves away from you. And you have to just sort of sit back a little bit and let it come to you. But what's happening when we experience insomnia? And I know there's a lot of different pathways. But what do you see in your practice of what's happening with insomnia when we can't sleep? Insomnia is a symptom that becomes a syndrome. And if you think about it, all of us have an occasional bout of insomnia, right? There are some times you should not be sleeping. So insomnia is simply defined as an interruption of your sleep or an inability to fall asleep or an ability to stay asleep to the point that it bothers you the next day, right? Many of our, uh, our patients, the clients you'll see, will say to you, well, I didn't sleep last night. I'm like, well, why does it bother you didn't sleep? And then they say, well, it bothers me I didn't sleep because now I don't function well the next day. So even though they're complaining to you about their sleep, what they're really complaining to you about is how it impacts how they feel when they're awake. Because if it didn't bother them, it wouldn't be an issue. If you didn't have to sleep, you could just use that time to do other things. So it's not this not sleeping per se. It's how the person thinks that they're not sleeping is going to affect them the next day. It certainly can affect them the next day. Once you know the misery of knowing that you're not functioning well, that you can't do what you want to do, that you're mired down because you feel you're not functioning as well as you could. And, and it impacts your entire life, your, both your professional and personal life, your interaction with your loved ones. And then you say, well, it's because I didn't sleep. That'll bother you. And then the next time that happens, you go, here I go again. And you get to these vicious cycles. It's, it's a horrible thing to have insomnia because People often feel out of control of their sleep. That's something you'll often hear about. Patients will tell you, clients will tell you, if I'm lucky, I'll get five hours of sleep, if I'm lucky. And really that implies is that sleep is coming from some outside source. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky. And also, when people have insomnia, what's really ha occurring is they become hypervigilant to their sleep. 
because it becomes a problem to be solved. If I don't sleep well, tomorrow's going to be a bad day, and I got to expect what's going to happen tomorrow, and it puts pressure on them. And it's something you have to do every single night. People talk about when they have people with insomnia talk a certain way that nobody else talks. The only people who ever say, I try to go to sleep. Nobody else ever says that. You're not trying to breathe. You just breathe. It's a natural biological process. Sleep will come eventually. But what happens is when people try to sleep, the only way to try to sleep is by keeping yourself awake. And I, and I think there's parallels to breathing, right? You're just breathing naturally because you're not focused on your breathing. You're just doing it. But breathing has voluntary control. You could hold your breath on the water. You could... You could breathe fast if you needed to. You could take deeper breaths. You could, you know, you can laugh, talk, and sing. So you have this voluntary control of breathing. But if you leave it alone, it'll flow by itself. Sleep's the same way. Sleep has this voluntary component to it, but it's only a one-way street. You can voluntarily keep yourself awake. You can't voluntarily put yourself to sleep. If I were to say to you, when I count to three, stay awake. Okay, stay awake. You have to stay awake. I'll give you a prize. Okay, but if, if you, I want you to fall asleep through the second and I'll give you a prize, you won't be able to. Yeah. So you can only voluntarily keep yourself awake. So once when people are in bed and they're thinking about, I have to sleep, you put pressure on yourself to sleep. And once you put pressure on yourself to sleep, your brain's reaction is something is wrong. And if something is wrong, what should I do? Stay awake. Hey, this is Diana here. I want to let you know about an online workshop I have coming up through Yoga Soup. It's called Act Daily with Compassion, and it's going to be held Sunday, December 13th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. You can learn more at yogasoup.com. The paradox of sleep, as you mentioned, is that we can be attacked at any point while we're sleeping. So we have to have mechanisms built into our brains to keep ourselves awake. How can a mother feed a baby every two to four hours unless biologically that woman is able to interrupt her sleep, take care of a, of a baby, and go back to sleep? And we all have this ability to interrupt our sleep. It's, it's, it's part of the physiology of sleeping. When we're in immediate danger, somebody yells fire, no matter how sleepy you are, you're going to get up and go. So if you're in immediate danger, you're going, you're going to wake up and take care of things. And if you're in a state of serenity, you're going to sleep very nicely, very deeply. But what if you're in chronic stress? Chronic stress, chronic danger is the same thing. So the brain is under the chronic stress situation. What it's going to do is sleep in spurts. But every hour and a half, every two hours, it's going to pop awake. And I have met many people, I'm sure you have too, who have really described beautiful lives. They have, they, you know, they, everything's going well in their life, except they can't sleep. And that's enough. If you think you're not being able to do something, that'll keep you awake all by itself. Yeah. And the, the insomnia feeds on itself. We define chronic insomnia as having insomnia for more than three months. And, you know, we see people with 15, 20 years of insomnia all the time. But it's interesting because the paradox of insomnia is very much the paradox of control. You see the same thing in something like a panic attack. So somebody starts to feel a little bit anxious and then they pay more attention to the physiology of what's happening inside their body. And then now they can't breathe and now they're noticing their heart, which causes the, the panic to get worse. And just like telling someone not to be anxious causes them to be more anxious trying to make yourself sleep you're going to be less likely to sleep so there's all these cognitive components associated with sleep we had alicia dr alicia brass on a, a while ago to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia a cbti and she talks about approaching uh, sleep with more of a willingness and stance of acceptance as opposed to control but then there's a lot of cues that trigger our sleep or prevent us from sleeping our sleep environments everybody's heard about sleep hygiene but as you write in the book, that's a little outdated. There's some newer information out since the sleep hygiene in the 1970s. 
What about environments that help support and promote sleep? And and what are we doing behaviorally? Uh, screen use, our beds, what are we doing behaviorally is getting in the way of a good night's sleep? I think thinking about sleep and control is a, is a really, really smart way of thinking about it because it, it really is a, is a part of this. Because sleeping in the end is about giving up control. You, you're saying, I am, I am going to go into the state of vulnerability. And just like it's, you cannot meditate if you feel you're in danger. You don't, people, you just sit in a highway, meditate, you know, in a crowded space, right? It's hard to do that. Um, it's hard to sleep if you think that you, you're in danger. So you have to give up that control. People sleep better usually around groups. If you know somebody's around. Nobody put their kids in little caves 30,000 years ago. Children slept with their parents, right? Putting a kid in separate bedrooms is a cultural thing. It's okay to do that. It's okay for them to wear shoes. It's okay for them to wear helmets, but it's cultural. So there is a whole thing of sleeping, the vulnerability involved with it, and, and giving up c- control. At the same time, sleep is a biological process, but it's also a learned process. You're taught how to sleep. It, it's, you learn to do that. So you create associations with your sleeping environment that you associate with safety. When we used to travel before the pandemic, no matter where you go in the world, you may go to some wonderful places. There's a special feeling about coming back to your own bed, getting back into your home, the feeling of, oh, you know, well, it feels so good to get it back into your bed. It's so familiar with it. it it's, it's, a, it's a place of, of comfort and it's a place of sanctuary. And it's a place of safety. And we sleep best in states of serenity. We sleep best when we feel safe, comfortable, and loved. That's the environment we provide our kids. And the question for yourself as an adult, how do you provide that own environment for yourself? You want to be able to go to bed that is going to sleep should not be a hassle. Going to sleep is not a chore, something you get to do. And it's going to help you do better tomorrow, right? Are we sleeping to enhance our, to be able to, to function better the next day? Or are we sleeping to escape our world? That's a different perspective. It's interesting, that concept of the bed, because one of the things that started happening for a lot of people during the pandemic, when they were uh, working from home more, and there are such limited spaces in our homes, kids are in this room, partners in this room, right? And so people started working from their beds. And I, I noticed this even for myself, or even there was a couple of sessions um, that it was really hot in my office, I didn't have air conditioning, mm-hmm. and so I was seeing some clients from my bed. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about trauma and suicidal thoughts from my bed. And then mm-hmm. I go to bed at night and what pops up, right? I, it's, it's in the same the basics of behavioral psychology in terms of like the, the context that you're in will evoke uh, the learning that happened there. So I, it's, but it's insidious. We don't even think about it. It's like, oh, my bed, I'll just sit down and, you know, grade some papers from my bed. But it causes a lot of problems, our, the, the context that we set up in our bedrooms. Yeah, I mean, one thing you see, especially with teenagers, I work, a lot, I work a lot with kids, is a lot of teenagers spend more time awake in their bedroom than sleeping in their bedroom. There's something to think about, right? I mean, you spend more time awake than sleeping there. It's a very unadult-like thing to do. Yeah, you definitely have that, that separate uh, space. And that's the idea in psychology of stimulus control, where you want to have a different environment for sleeping and being awake. And of course, there's always for people who um, go trouble sleeping. Patients often will say things to me like, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I do it anyway. I'm not supposed to read in bed. And they, and they kind of have almost this guilt about it. Like they come to confession. You know, I'm not supposed to do this, but I do it anyway. And they're like, it's okay. You know, it's like saying, can you have chocolate cake for breakfast? Well, it's okay to do it if you, you know, if, if it's a special occasion, you don't have diabetes, but if you do, you shouldn't do that. So we do want to have that, that separation between your sleeping world and your wake world. But the reason is people get caught up in the sleep hygiene of these exact rules. And I really want people to take a step back and think about the reason behind it is you're trying to realize that sleeping is something you learn to do. 
that you enjoy. Just because you have a routine does not mean it's pleasant. You may have a routine that's unpleasant, and therefore you dread it. And sleeping is, I got to go through all these steps in order to go to sleep, and I don't like doing it. And they get resentful, they get angry about it. So it's, it's, I think the more thing is start thinking about you get to go to sleep, not that you have to go to sleep. You use that term in your book, orthosomnia, where people are getting, it's like orthorexia, I work with eating disorders, right. and you get so obsessed about all of your sleep routines, you need your magnesium bath and your blue light glasses and all these things, and then you're lying awake. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about screen use? Because that's one of the things where the recommendation is to turn off your screens two hours before bed. And the reality is, is most people are... That's how they're reading now is, is on, on their phone or, or for a lot of people, I was talking with a client about it, they're using their phone because it has their sleep sounds on it or their, the things that soothe them at night that they turn to. So what, what should we be doing there and what is happening with the blue light and our optic nerve? I think we got to stop calling the thing a phone anyway. It's just a handheld computer, yeah. right? Because most people, especially our teenagers, they don't use their phones for, for as the phone mostly. You, you occasionally talk into it, but most of your interactions with it are more as a handheld computer. I have mixed minds about the screens. There, there is a very cool story in, in neuroanatomy um, how for years when we were uh, students, we were taught that there were all these things called rods and cones, that the photoreceptors in the retina were rods and cones. And then they realized later that there were these special photoreceptors that had been ignored for a long time, which were these intrinsic photoreceptive ganglion cells that simply only seem to have one function, is to know when dawn occurred. So these little tiny neurons in um, photoreceptors inside a retina that had this one thing, and they happen to respond preferentially to blue light. And that's where the blue light thing comes about, that for us to see in the retina, it's, it's, it's polysynaptic. So there are all these layers of, of retinal tissue that gets processed for how the vision to work. But there is these one set of neurons, what I just mentioned, that have a single axon, a straight line, a straight shot to the biological clock, which is in the hypothalamus. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So you have a single line, a, a straight shot to the clock, and the brain wants to know what time dawn occurred because it's essential for our survival as animals to predict dawn and dusk. And we also live in a planet where the days shift and go. Right now we're talking and we're going to be gaining an hour of sleep this weekend. And in the spring, we're going to lose an hour. And that's a whole separate conversation. But the fact is that the sun comes and goes. The days get longer, they get shorter. And if we're hunters and gatherers, we need to predict sun up and sun down in order to hunt and gather. So it was essential for our survival to predict sun up and sun down. And many animals are diurnal, nocturnal, and the genes for this have been worked out to the point that was the 2017 Nobel Prize. What happens is the brain is trying to predict dawn and dusk, and it knows that more or less the sun will come up on the same time every day. So circadian means about a day, because if I wake up at eight o'clock in the morning, and that's the first light to, first, first burst of light to hit my eyes. Tomorrow, my light's going to come around 8 o'clock in the morning again. And that's where that comes from. But if you ask any person about their sleep needs, they're going to give you two numbers. You might right now say, how much sleep do you need? Well, people say things, I like to get nine, but I can get by with seven. Or I can get, get by with six, as long as I can have this minimum amount. So there's a minimum amount of sleep that we can get by. And it makes sense. If sleep is inherently dangerous, we should have flexibility in our ability to sleep and how we adapt to things. So we have this, all this is built into it. So what happens is when you have light coming into your eyes at night, it tells your brain it's a long summer day or it's a short summer night. So the brain's going to start uh, saying, okay, I'm going to stay awake longer. And the signal to our brain that night is coming, your clients are familiar with it, is, is this, uh, the pineal gland secreting melatonin. Melatonin tells your brain night's approaching. 
people think, oh, melatonin makes us sleepy. Well, not really. It doesn't really make you sleepy. It just tells your brain that it's approaching. And nocturnal animals like rodents have elevated melatonin in their brains at night. It means to them, nighttime is, is coming, get busy. So melatonin can be signaled to get active or to, or to go to sleep. It simply signals that night is approaching. But the melatonin secretion is interfered with by light. It's blocked. So when you, have, when you have a lot of bright light, you can have somebody who's eating pounds of melatonin, but you have light pouring into your eyes, it's not going to really work because the melatonin is not supposed to be active coming in when light's coming to your eyes. So that's why we know that light plays a role in our circadian rhythms. And the, the most drastic example of this is people who are blind, who, who, are, who don't have any light perception. Some people have different degrees of blindness. People who are blind have very messed up sleep cycles mm. um, and the medication that they can get for that and, and the ways of entraining them. So we know the light plays a role in this. Having said all that, it's not just the light because that's not, it's, just, it's an influencer, but what matters more is not the light, but the content right. that you're acquiring, the information you're getting. So if you want to really upset a teenager, take away their phone, right? Because they get really mad. And if I make somebody mad, you're not going to fall asleep, right? If I, if it, because if you anger somebody, anger is, it will keep you awake more, more than light, I think. So it's more of an issue of them. Do they want to give it up? Um, I saw an old TV show, uh, the Tonight Show, 1975 episode, because Dr. Dement, who we mentioned earlier, was a guest on, this, on, the, on, the, on the Johnny Carson show. And I was watching this clip of, of, of Johnny Carson in 1975, and he says to Dr. Dement, parents are mad at me because they say the kids stay awake watching my show. Now, there was no internet back then. There was no cell phones back then. But people were still watching TV. It was it the light? Was it the content? Was it just the chance to stay awake a little bit? It's always easier to stay awake than to fall asleep. So you'll always will stay awake a little bit longer. If you are looking to fall asleep faster, yes, you want to keep your lights down to some degree. But at the same time, it can't be this idea that you must block out all light because what they've done with the cell phones and the apps is they put in these blue light filters. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, this makes biological sense. You've gotten rid of this blue light, mm -hmm. but they've not really been shown to make a huge difference in whether you were to sleep or not. So I've, I've come to think about adding these blue light blockers as kind of putting a filter on a cigarette. Yeah, it may filter some things out, but you're still getting nicotine. You still have this whole psychology of smoking that, that goes on with it. So that it's the content that you're engaging with that matters just as much in, in, in part of also, it sounds like your brain in a wind down kind of position or a winding up. Are you reading things that activate your threat system, make you feel unsafe, mm -hmm. the news, things like that. And I loved in your book about, and this is something that Dr. Bross also talked about, of what to do when you wake up in the night. Because a lot of times what we do is we wake up and we, phone's right there, we turn to our phone and we scroll through or we, and that just activates our brain again. But Dr. Bross and, and you talk about creating a, a space to go to where you have something kind of boring to do. She said, go color or knit. And you said, read your appliance manual. <laughs> yeah, go, go, read, go read the refrigerator warranty. Right. It, so what, what should we do when we wake up in the night? First thing is you should be glad you woke up. We're alive. Yeah. I mean, we live in California. Is, is tomorrow guaranteed to any one of us? Right. right. It's out of your control, but it could be an earthquake, not, not to be morbid. But the point is, you shouldn't be upset that you woke up. It's an it's a, it's a amazing thing that we go through these cycles and wake up. So waking up is not the problem. Biologically, all humans wake up about every hour and a half. This is not then can, that you woke up. This is can you go back to sleep? That's a separate issue. But don't get mad that you woke up. That's your biology. You're supposed to wake up. You have to get up, go check on things. 
all humans open their eyes throughout the night and check out their environment about 10 times an hour. We have a little burst of brainwaves that last about three seconds where we're checking our environment out. We're always checking out our surroundings because sleeping and we're, we're vulnerable. So we go through these up and down cycles. And they've actually done this with uh, pre-industrial tribes where they put uh, activity monitors on them. And they see that in a tribe of people, somebody's always awake throughout the night. They may go to bed around the same time, get up around the same time, but they're cycling on and off. And there may be some value to to a grandmother, a menopausal grandmother, uh, who has, when women go through menopause, they've been so choppy. Well, they contribute to, to the tribe also because their fragmentation of their sleep is watching out. Mm-hmm. And when children, teenagers go through puberty, they have a natural biological shifting to go to bed later. But that's counted by all of us. I'm in my 50s. People over age 50 have a harder time going to, uh, staying up at night. We tend to go to bed earlier, and it gradually builds. So it, we're all protective of this. Um, can you repeat your question? Because I know I digress a little bit on that or I digress oh, a lot. what we should do if we do wake up in the night we'll wake and we up can't thank sleep, you, thank we you. can't fall back asleep. Okay, so first off, don't be upset. Then we decide, okay, what woke you up? Um, if you woke up for a valid reason, right, then go take care of that. You know, I just realized I forgot to, to lock my, my front door. Go lock the front door. But if you find you're waking up and your mind is thinking, even when they wake up and can't go back to sleep, it's unresolved things in the back of their mind. It's unfinished stuff. Because what happens is a lot of people, on any given day, you have 10 things to do. And you got eight of them done. You had a great day. But the two that you forgot, you're going to remember laying in bed because that's when you're alone with your thoughts. But if instead of thinking about those two things that you didn't do, you're, you're reading until the last second, you're on your tablet or whatever, and then you crash, you fall asleep. These two things did not get done. So after you get a minimum amount of sleep, three, four, five hours, five hours seems to be a magic number. After five hours, you're going to pop awake and go, hey, I didn't take care of this, I didn't take care of that. Mm-hmm. Or what about this? So you could go try to take care of those things. But there's a lot of things that are out of our control. And if it's out of your control, there's no point in dwelling on it now. It says, okay, I'll deal with it tomorrow. So if you're laying in bed, you pop awake, don't get upset. Don't look at the clock because it doesn't really matter what time is it. It's nighttime. That's what time it is. You don't need to know. It's three. Patients will cry. So they got up at 318 to 28. It doesn't matter. Just you, I love that. Up. It's nighttime. It doesn't matter yeah, what that's, time it is if you're wondering. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. nighttime. Right. Yeah, it's nighttime. Just turn the clock around. <laughs> because what happens to people think of like, I woke up and that was a problem to be fixed. Oh, should I take my pill or not take my pill? I left half the pill by the bedside. Can I take it now? Should I go do this? Should I take that? And now the natural biological awakenings become problems to be solved. And you're going to spin your wheels. So if you lay in bed for a few minutes and you find, hey, you know, just know, realize that sleep will always come. Just wait. It's going to come. If you find yourself getting edgy, getting restless, like, oh, you know, you just, this is happening every night to you, leave. But do something that's not productive. Because when people think, well, I'm wasting my time, you want to go do something. But if you do something that's productive, you're rewarding your insomnia. I've had patients who like leave the dishes out. Says, well, I'm, no, I'm going to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to do my dishes then. Or I'm going to work on this for work. If it's something that you need to do, then go ahead and do it because it's important. You know, during the pandemic, when we were um, homeschooling and my colleague and I, Debbie, were writing a book together, like really bad time to be writing a book and being a parent and having a practice. I would wake up in the night and I'd have these deadlines and I would, this is such like a confession, as you said, I would go and I'd work on the book in the middle of the night for a couple hours. And then I'd feel this relief of like, okay, I actually got something done because it was the only quiet time in my day to mm-hmm. be able to get, I actually got some really good <laughs> writing in and then I'd got go back it. to bed. But then the whole day I'd feel irritable and 
you know, distractible and all the consequences of the middle of the night work. But you're right, it's so reinforcing. If you're productive during that insomnia time, it's just, it just continued the cycle of insomnia for me. And I started really changing my habits because it got so, so bad. And now what I do is I have a, a space that I go to where I keep, I have cookbooks and I just look through like pictures and it brings me kind of like pleasant feelings, but there's just not a lot of content in it when you're reading a recipe. Right. Uh, and then it, I get sleepy and then I go back to bed. And another thing that I, that I tried of yours that actually has been awesome, which is doing a, a journal uh, and I call it my day is done journal because I think you use some kind of languaging in that. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I say. My yeah. day is done. My you day know, is say done. It and be- yeah. done. Say it and believe it. Yeah, say it and believe it. And then I write down all the things that might come up for me in the middle of the night, the unfinished projects, but also what I'm going to get to the grocery store tomorrow, anything that I'll ruminate on. And then at the end, I just put it in the journal. And I write the day is done and I close it. It's sort of like how at the end of the day in our house, we say kitchen closed, no more snacks, kids, mom's not cleaning it up again, kitchen closed. But I, I but I, I like that because it's not that I'm actually ever going to finish all these things, but I have them down so that my mind won't have to remind me of them as I'm falling asleep or in the middle of the night. It's been a game changer for me. I really appreciate that idea from you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I learned that from other people too. I mean, just sharing information that we've all learned from, from our colleagues and friends over the years. When you write that down in the evening, people say, well, can I just do it in the middle of the day or something? It goes, no, I want it to be your day's over. It gives you the closure. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's kind of you're tucking yourself in. Yeah. And when you do that, you don't just jump into bed. Do something you enjoy. You know, you reward yourself. I mean, my day's done. I get warm baths, whatever you want to do that say my day's done. But the next thing is in the morning when you wake up, well, first of all, during the night, if you remember something, you pop away, goes, no, no, the important stuff already got written down. It's taken care of. I don't have to go write it, go down again. Right. But in the morning, when you look at the things you wrote, if you get, if you look at them again, it goes, your day's organized. It's all there, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and problems always seem larger to us in the evening, in the morning. I'm like, oh, I was so worried about this thing. It wasn't as bad as I thought. But by, by doing this on a regular basis, that seems to be consistently what patients tell me is the best thing to get rid of the racing thoughts in the middle of the night is, is have these things written down beforehand because that way you don't have to be in bed with these mixed signals. Because when you're laying in bed with racing thoughts, you're telling your body is, hey, body, I want you to sleep. Hey, brain, don't forget to take care of this. And you're spinning your wheels, not getting anywhere, right? If you're stuck in the mud, stepping harder in the gas is not going to get you out of the mud. You got to change your approach to it. And that's what's happening with that. And people hate that, that wasted time that they spend in bed. It really, really angers them. So I'm glad that this technique's working for you. Yeah. It is effective. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumaman. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. So I wish I had you years ago when my kids were little and they weren't sleeping. And I'd love to talk with you about kids sleep because that's the number one thing when I sent out a little uh, message to my co-host and I said, what, what should I talk to him about? And they were like, kids sleep, get my kids to sleep. So what are some tips? And I know it's complex. There's different perspectives. Children are born sleeping randomly. The rhythms imposed on them by you. So let's make believe that your family that you were sleeping at daytime and worked at night you would have a child adapt to your schedule. The baby is born with, 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 with a plasticity to their sleep patterns that you impose on them as you go along, just like you do with food. You can eat randomly, you can sleep randomly, but then you don't get into any kind of rhythm. And you need to have rhythms because we're hunters and gatherers again, right? How can we 
decide to, how can you and I agree today to, to meet at a certain time for this podcast unless we can predict time to a certain degree? It's essential for us to be organized as a society to, to be able to do things at a certain time. So what I really want to do is I take a step back and I says, let's not ask what the child wants. Let's ask what the family wants. Because I think about how the entire family sleeps. Um, because I work with kids and adults. And then once we see what schedule the parents want, then I'll say, okay, what is your child's incentive to follow this, this pattern? You, you know, if, it, if a kid's coming in at night to talk to you, what's your incentive to do that? And sometimes I flip it around a little bit. Let's say you have a three or four-year-old and, and it's wonderful to talk with them because kids have this magical way of thinking. The three or four-year-old says, well, I wake up at night, I, I go to my parents' room. And they usually only pick one parent, by the way. And there's obviously all kinds of families, right? So I'm just generalizing uh, a two-parent household, but there's all kinds of, of situations. But you'll see they only go to one side of the bed because they know that's where that, the parent that will responsive to them. And I say, how come the child doesn't go to the other parent? It goes, oh, that you know, he or she ignores them. Okay, well, duh, that's the issue, right? But what I find has been illuminating to me is, uh, so the kid comes in the parent's room, says, oh, mommy, I can't sleep, daddy, I can't sleep, whatever, I need help. And the parent puts them in the room and walks them back. And the parent is tired about this. And then I ask a child, especially if it's somebody who's like two, at least three years old, you can, you can talk with them. I said, do you know that your mom, your dad, you know, you, the person who's with you, you know, they wake up at night too sometimes? They do. They don't realize that, right? It's hard for a child to understand what the parents are like when they're not around mm-hmm. them, right? So I said, you know, your your parents, your mom, your dad, you know, they wake up at night also at night. When they wake up at night, do they go to your room and wake you up to let you know that they're awake? They go, no. <laughs> Why not? Because it's rude. Kids learn politeness, right? It's one of the things you teach them. It's polite to say, please. It'd be rude for your parents to wake you up just because they can't sleep at night, Right. And ask your dad, why are you letting your parents know that you're awake at night? And you say, ask your, ask your mom, ask your dad, whoever, whoever, whoever's bringing the child to, to the uh, visit. Is it okay for you to tell them in the morning? Do you need to tell them right then and there through, in the dark? Or can you let them know in the morning? And they, and they say, and your parents say, mommy, it's okay if I tell you in the morning that I woke up? He goes, yeah, tell me in the morning. I'd rather you do that, right? Do it that way. Because yeah. the kids sometimes feel really guilty about it too because they know that they're having trouble sleeping and they know they irritate their parents, but they're scared. And I think a lot of times the fear that kids are having at night is really the so-called fear of the dark is really fear of being alone. Right. Because children learn, associate darkness with being left alone. The only time a kid is in the dark is usually when they're being left alone to sleep and associate that. So really fear of the dark, I think it's just fear of, of, of being left alone. It's just always into this issue of safety. And you see kids with anxiety issues and you talk about it, it goes, it's about safety, but it's also about being loved. And you know that your mother loves you no matter what, your dad loves you no matter what, they provide you with a safe environment. If they pick that room out for you, it's because they know it's safe. They didn't pick a dangerous place for you to sleep if they're sleeping separate from you, yeah. right? So it's something you're learning how to do. Just like you learn to tie your shoelaces, just like you're learning to do different things, you're going to learn to sleep separate because your parents decided this is what they want for you. And what are your thoughts about co-sleeping? It's personal. It's personal. a very personal thing. Yeah, it's just personal, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, it's what you as a parent decide you want your child to do. It, it's, as I said earlier, nobody puts a kid in a separate cave, but it's a nice thing for you to share a bed with the child. And it's not really co-sleeping, it's bed sharing mm. because your sleep, you sleep a uh, lot less hours than a child will. So nobody really shares exact uh, sleep at the same time. It's impossible. You're not going to sleep 17 hours, in a baby, but a baby will. But will you share the bed or not? So the, the canary pediatrics concerns are for sudden infant death is not to share a mattress with, with an infant. But if you got a two or three-year-old, you want to cuddle with them, what's nicer? And even parents will say that 
they don't um, that they sleep separate from their kids. They have separate bedrooms. You know, on a Saturday morning, your, your kid wants to come to bed and cuddle with you for a little bit. You're going to turn them away. It's kind of nice. Yeah. And you're going to miss it later when they get older that they don't want to share us any time with you. So it's a personal thing. And as a clinician, it's not my job to impose my cultural beliefs on my patients. It's more an issue to find out. I ask the parents, what do they want to do? So you've dedicated a career to sleep. You're married to a physician who also specializes in sleep. What are you doing in your household to get a good night's sleep? And what does your family uh, culture and environment around sleep look like? What are some of the things that you do? It's just a routine thing. People, patients ask me all the time, do I sleep well? I think I sleep fine. Yeah, I just go, I go to bed at night. I lay down, I, I fall asleep and I wake up. I, I don't have, occasionally, if, if something, you know, I've had sad things happen in my life. I've had, you know, things that we go through and I pop awake and I realize and I know, okay, this is what's happening. Um, and, and, but I know that this is a finite thing that I'm reacting a certain way because something has happened in my life. So I'm not sleeping well at that moment, but I know that sleep is going to come again. So I know that basically my body's doing what it's supposed to do when your body wakes you up. So I'm not that worried about uh, sleeping. We have two children and I write about them in the book about how they slept. Overall, they, they sleep well. We're fortunate. We've had sleep, you know, situations that have come up over the years and we've addressed them. I go to bed around the same time most nights. I pop awake around the same time most days. I look forward to to when I wake up. I know I'm going to go do things. I rarely set an alarm clock. That's really it. I mean, if I want to read or watch TV a little bit at night, it's okay. But I'm not I'm not worried about not sleeping. It's not it's not a concern I have. So I'm fortunate. But I've had had the experience of having bouts of insomnia when traveling and or things just things are unsettled. Somebody's sick or something. Um, so I, I, I understand how that works. I snore, so I don't want to snore. So I use a CPAP machine myself. I like that. Um, so I, I kind of turbocharge my, my own sleep by doing that. So that's how that goes. It's interesting because it's, it's sort of a similar response when you talk to someone that is just a normal eater and doesn't struggle with food and doesn't struggle with their, their body weight or their body image. They're just like, I eat when I hung, when I'm hungry, I stop when I'm full, I eat foods that I enjoy. I, you know, I don't stress about it and it's not a, it becomes not an issue. Right. And so it's, it seems like with these, you know, basic body functions like sleep, it's some of it is trusting, trusting your body knows what, what to do. And, and getting out of the way a little bit and just letting it be do what it does and enjoy some of those basic functions of eating and sleep. If someone is having um, uh, struggling with their sleep and or their child is struggling with sleep, what would you recommend in terms of they are seeking out a sleep doctor or someone to help them What in terms of that? What should you be looking for? When do you know to go? We have a whole chapter on, on, on what's it like to visit a sleep doctor and when you want to go. If somebody says, I am... Um, I wake up tired, I wake up unrefreshed, no matter how much sleep I get, then you want to get some professional help. A lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm tired or I'm sleepy when I wake up because I didn't get enough hours of sleep. And they go, well, what happens when you're on vacation, when you have time off? Do you still feel that way? If somebody says, oh, no, when I'm on vacation, I feel fine. It's only when I'm at work. Then, okay, this is a behavioral issue. But if somebody says to me, I'm tired no matter how much sleep I get, or I don't have memories of waking up refreshed, or I used to wake up refreshed when I was younger, and I'd never wake up refreshed anymore. If you're tired, no matter how much sleep you're getting, then you got to think about the quality of sleep. When I think of sleep, I think of sleep in four dimensions. There's four components of anybody's sleep problem. The amount of sleep, the quality of their sleep, the timing of their sleep, and ultimately their state of mind. Are they looking forward to sleeping, sleeping in a house, or do they enjoy their life? Because your sleep is a reflection of your life, and your life is reflected in your sleep. It goes in both directions. you got to get a sense of, what, of what's happening. 
And you're gonna meet some people describe to you horrific situations. I just saw a patient a few days ago with one of my trainees, one of our fellows, and he describes all this insomnia issues. And then when we talk with her so more deeply, she's worried about her father dying and she's gotta go, knows that she takes any medication, she will be able to drive to go see him on his deathbed kind of thing. So she's conflicted. So I explained to her, listen, given the situation that you're in, why are you expecting to get a good night's sleep? You're going to sleep thinking you're on call to go see somebody before they die. You you are going to go through this period of time where you're not going to sleep well. It'd be weird if you were sleeping just fine, given the situation you're describing. Mm-hmm. So you got to think a little bit differently. It's not the sleep, it's the situation that you're in. So if somebody says that if they're tired about how much sleep they get, then you want to get your sleep measured. One of the reasons I wrote the book is, that you, I, you meet people that have been suffering with their sleep for years and years and years, and you realize that once they get the right attention, you can get their problems better and they'll improve. So if somebody says to, to me, uh, or somebody, if you say to your doctor, hey, I'm tired, your doctor says I'm tired too, or I can't sleep, but the doctor says I don't sleep either, you're seeing the wrong doctor, right? You want to see somebody who, who, who takes care of this. And modern sleep medicine has reached a point now that it's, un, it's unusual for somebody not to improve. We have good tools for insomnia. CBT has been an excellent tool for this. We have better medications than ever for sleep apnea. CPAP has never been better. We're in the golden era of CPAP right now. We're living through it right now. I have patients say, well, years ago, I tried it, it didn't work. Try it again now. It's better than before. So to me, if you wake up unrefreshed in your sleep, on a routine basis, you should be seeing a sleep doctor. It, you know, it's interesting because the second chapter of your book is on snoring. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a bore. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but then I read it and I'm fascinated and I'm thinking about, it's actually quite interesting, how many people snore, how many of my clients have reported snoring and, and it's actually a major problem in their marriage. They can't sleep in the same bed or they feel really terrible when they wake up and they just sort of say, but I'm a snorer. It's just sort of who I am, right? Or they travel and they can't ever be a roommate with anybody. But I was fascinated to find out how, how much snoring is actually a physiological problem that really we need to be serious about addressing and recommend you go see a doctor if you're snoring. It's a big deal. Yeah, nobody should ever snore, especially not a child, but certainly nobody should ever snore. Yeah. Snoring, right now, you know, you and I are talking with each other, but we're not snoring. Right? Breathing, <laughs> is a, breathing is silent, yeah. right? Breathing is a silent activity. Why would you tip off your presence to, to predators by making noise? And I've had patients tell me things, well, Snoring scares away the, the wild animals because they know you're there. It goes, no, it's not. It's a dinner bell, right? There's no snoring in the wild, really. So snoring always implies some degree of airflow obstruction. And the snoring by itself can be disruptive to your bed partner. It's unpleasant. When we talk about couples, you have to be not only compatible when you're awake, you have to be sleep compatible, right? If nobody wants to sleep next to a snoring person, it's unpleasant. And it gets louder and gets worse over time. Yeah, you're punching your partner all night long. <laughs> Roll over. Yeah, somebody yeah. asked me that the other day. How, um, when am I allowed to punch to 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 punch my bed partner? I'm like never. You know, once you ask, ask your bed partner if they want to be reminded to turn on their side because sleeping is worse on, on your back. Let the, to have this conversation up front. Why do it in the middle of the night when people are going to going to be upset that they've been woken up? But you should never ever snore. It's always a sign of some degree of airflow obstruction. It could be allergies. It could be a broken nose. It could be sleep apnea, and Sleep research became sleep medicine because we needed to explain why people die in their sleep. And this whole idea of people dying of natural causes, people dying peacefully in their sleep. Maybe, but maybe they probably could have been choking in their sleep. When you're dreaming, REM sleep is, for a lot of us, when we have our peak heart rate. If you have a sedentary lifestyle, the biggest workout your heart gets is simply dreaming. And heart attacks cluster around the same time that dreaming occurs. And... A lot of our referrals these days are coming from cardiologists 
because they're seeing the patients with atrial fibrillation, uncontrolled hypertension actually have sleep sleep apnea specifically that's not been addressed. And the good news, the wonderful news, is if you address the sleep apnea, the cardiac effects improve. So we know it's a good thing to do it. It should make sense to you that it's good to breathe and sleep at the same time. When people sleep apnea, simply have trouble doing both at the same time. And the brain says, I'd rather sleep than breathe. Think about it. It's so crucial to sleep. The brain says, I'd rather sleep than breathe. And that's what happens there. Wow. So it's a fixable thing. We should never, ever be, ever be snoring. Yeah. Well, thank you for addressing all of that and everything that you've addressed today, everything from uh, sleep across the lifespan to what's happening when we sleep. What I love about you is a very workable, uh, flexible approach to sleep. It's not that there's these you know rigid rules that you need to follow, but really what's workable in your life and, and how you can uh, get a better night's sleep over time by, by looking at some of these strategies. You're going to be joining us again in January with our Wise Mind Summit with Psychologists Off the Clock. And listeners will get a chance to send in questions to us so that we can uh, offer them to you to answer more questions on sleep. So we can't wait to see you again. It's been a delight to have you on the show. And go out and get how to sleep, which is coming out December. What's the date of December 8th? I think is the, the release date. 8th. Okay. So yeah. it'll be out by the time we release this episode, which will be the second week of December. So that's wonderful. Go and go and find it um, at your local bookstore and hopefully you will get a better night's sleep everybody after reading this book. Thank you so much, Dr. Paleo. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to psychologist off the clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.